Well, good morning once again. If you have your Bibles with you, hope you do. Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, you happen to have your device on you, you can Google it. Uh, just find a place to follow along today. We'll be doing a lot of Luke 2, uh, reading out of the ESV or the English Standard Version. Uh, we'll get started here in just a minute. Before we do, I just want to give you a bit of a preamble, a review of where we've been and where we're going today. And then we'll, we'll pray and get into the text. But Luke chapter 2 is where we're headed. We're in week three of our Advent series, or you might call it the Christmas series, and so we are going to have uh, week three very much in the logical flow of Advent. So we started with week one was hope, that they're uh, still in your house right now, kids especially, there is some hope for Friday morning. You are anticipating that, kids, I would imagine. It is this close to Christmas. You're in the final countdown. In the same way that there is hope for Christmas in your household, uh, there was a time where the people of God were hoping for the Messiah to come, the chosen one of God to come to crush the head of our enemy, the serpent. And they hoped for him. Then he, he does come. And now that reminds us as we hope for Christmas, we hope for the return of Jesus. And so we orient our hearts that way to hope for his coming. And so then week two, if we hope for something, we prepare for it. You've prepared for Christmas. I would imagine your house looks very different right now than it, it typically does. I hope. All the Christmas shopping is done. Gentlemen, you have five days. Maybe some stuff still needs to get wrapped, but most of the preparation is done. You prepare for Christmas. And so we saw last week, we, we could see through uh, several characters in the story, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary, the how to prepare our lives for the coming of our Lord. But then that comes to week three. You've hoped for something. You've prepared for it. Here's some good news. It finally does come. And there's joy to it. You've anticipated it, you've prepared for it, and now it actually comes. That's coming Friday morning for a lot of you when it comes to Christmas Day. And so that's what we get to see today. An explosion of joy when the promise of God and what you've prepared for is actually finally kept. And that's where that joy comes from. And so before we dive into the text, I just want to get your minds thinking through this concept of joy. It's obviously very different than happiness. You've probably heard that discussed before. I landed on this quote I'm about to give you. I could not trace from whence it comes. A lot of folks have said it over the last century or so in the Christian world. But let's make sure we understand what joy is versus happiness, and we'll pray and get started. The quote is this. Happiness is untested delight. Joy is delight tested. So let me flesh that out for you. There is some delight in some things we get here, some happiness. Thought of some examples. There is delight in the new car, or at least the new-to-you car that you get for your family. And it's fun. It's a lot of happiness. And then it breaks down. Or for some of you, just the first payment comes due. And that delight, you, just, you pushed on it. You tested your delight just a little. You just pushed on the joy of that new car, the happiness of that new car. And it is not as joyful as you thought. For some of us, it might be you remember, uh, it's, it's a night out with your, your, some of the people you love the most. And the conversation's great. It goes on for hours. The food is great. The drinks are great. It's just an incredible night. And then you do have to get up early the next morning, and you kind of regret it, right? Or maybe the, just the bill comes due for that. And there was this delight, this incredible night you had. You just pushed on it a little. You just tested it. And it just fell right over. There was happiness. It was good. But I just tested it a little, and it wasn't quite there. There's a relationship, maybe, or, or marriage. There's, there's delight in it. But when you test it a little, maybe that first real big argument that takes weeks or months to truly resolve, and you've got to work on yourselves and some underneath stuff, you pushed on it a little and did not stand up to your testing. That's happiness. You test it, and it doesn't stand. But that's not joy. For example, 
Maybe your uh, small child, your toddler, tests you for like a full day. Maybe they test you the, the night before. But you know how you feel about that baby boy, that baby girl when you see them the next morning? You, you, you haven't changed at all in your orientation. For whatever reason, that little monster, you still love that. You love that little one. It's all the same. No, no matter what they've done. Well, that's joy. You tested it and it stood. Maybe it was going through that very hard thing with your, with your spouse or, or with another friend. And what you did was test that relationship. You, t- you tested that companionship. You pushed on it a little and it stood. And there's joy in that. Maybe it is through circumstance you've already been through. Some of you have are just getting old enough to be through some circumstances, but you tested the faithfulness of God. You pushed on it, and it stood, and there's joy there. And so there's the happiness, the things you push on. It's happiness is untested delight. It's happy until you push on it a little. But man, there's joy. Things that you test, and they stay there. The Scripture tells us that it is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. That's where we find strength is in the joy of the Lord. We know that as we grow in the Spirit, the, that Paul writes that it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. As we grow to be more like Jesus, we're going to grow in our love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. The psalmist tells us that it is in the presence of the Lord there is the fullness of joy. Wherever else you can find some joy, the fullness of it is in the presence of God. And then he says in the same psalm that there are pleasures forevermore. So here's what we do know. We have a God that wants joy for us. That's his heart. We know that just by looking around at the world. He could have made it gray, and he didn't. He didn't have to make things pretty, but he did. He didn't have to make sugar sweet and bacon savory, but he did. We get flavors. But the Lord obviously wants us to have joy. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, the, uh, the C.S. Lewis, Lewis book was called Surprised by Joy. And he wrote this sentence, very famous, joy is the serious business of heaven. And what he was contrasting that is, the way that we think about joy, is that it comes in these tiny little pockets of life. We, were, we carved it out. Like for one hour, I get to be by myself. And that's where I'm going to find joy. Uh, or for this week, we're going to go on vacation. And that's where I'm going to find joy. The rest of life is business. But we, make, we, t- we carve out time for joy. But in God's economy, in God's kingdom, by design, joy is the business of heaven. What business should we attend to today? Let's go find some joy. That's the business of heaven. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. In one set of characters you're very familiar with in the Christmas story, maybe two you're less familiar with, and let's see if we can push on the things we find joy in and find the true joy of Christmas as we go through this text. Uh, Wayne, if you would pray over our time in the Word, and then we're going to get started in Luke chapter 2. For what the law could not do, he was weak through the flesh God sending his own son <laughs> in the likeness of sinful flesh condemned sin in the, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh Amen. that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled That's good. in us who walk after the spirit and not after the flesh That's good. Lord as we ponder this great thing that you've done this advent, this incarnation this actually Christ gave the seed Sometimes we forget about what a great miracle this is. Yeah. It's good. We see that in the psalm it says that our birth is a miracle, that God knits us together, that, that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, and then we think about our spiritual birth. Mm. What a miracle this is. Amen. We should be just as awe of what God has done. Amen. You used Brother Corey's sermon this morning, God. 
can make us in awe. To just stand back and just give glory to God for what He has done. It's a miracle. It's a wonderful thing. Amen. I pray that we would just glory in the person and the work of Jesus Christ today. That's good. And just be just in awe of what He's love for us and what He's done. I thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's get to work. It is joyous work, but it is work. Let's go. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Just a quick aside I want to give you here. Uh, this is super historical language. It doesn't start with... Uh, uh, in a galaxy f far away a long, long time ago. It doesn't start once upon a time. It starts very factual because we're about to read a very physical, historic, accurate story. And Luke sets the tone for the start that what we're about to read actually happened. Verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because Joseph was of the house and the lineage of David. He was going to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. We'll pause there for a second. Joseph, thus far in the story, was only mentioned once. It was last chapter, and he was just mentioned as Mary's betrothed. We really don't know anything about him from uh, Luke's gospel. Over in Matthew, if we turned over there, we learn his story. He finds out about Mary's very unexplained pregnancy and makes a decision to divorce her quietly. He doesn't want to embarrass her. He doesn't want to ruin her. Uh, but this unexplained pregnancy has, a lot, has led him to put her away and uh, divorce her quietly. Gabriel comes on the scene, the, the angel, and intervenes. And so instead of having that quiet divorce, now they're here. The other quick word on this is there's a, an undercurrent here of just the sovereign power of God. There are all kinds of uh, prophecies, well, at least two, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so you have this Messiah, Messiah's mom, who's very, very pregnant, uh, not in Bethlehem. And this wasn't a moment of God saying, oopsie, I forgot to put her over in, in Bethlehem. Uh, this was sovereign for all of time as God turns the hearts of political leaders. That should be a comfort to us that he can, that he just arranged it. That the decree went out. Let's get, let's get Mary to Bethlehem for this virgin birth. Verse 6. And while they, Mary and Joseph, were in Bethlehem, the time came for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. You know, over the years, I've gotten to read to you a lot of texts. And one of the things the Bible does is it, they will write down, the biblical writers, the most dramatic things in the most factual language. Like they just tell you what happened. But this is a very dramatic thing that just happened. And so it's worth for us... It's worth us stopping and imagining, turn on your sanctified imagination, and think through this. First, think about that journey. This is exhausting. Arduous, long miles, uncomfortable. You have to imagine she's very pregnant, so probably not in her best mood. Uh, you have to imagine she's already quite uncomfortable. Um, some of you will get into uh, conflicts in your very comfortable cars that have air conditioning and heat. It doesn't take long for you guys to get uh, kind of tiffed at each other. Consider Mary and Joseph, two young people riding on some kind of beast outside. Like this is, it's a hard trip if you start thinking about what that would have been like. And then the birth. This is one, I would imagine, 
one of the most harrowing parts of being a woman. One of the Genesis 3 curses was to the woman, there will be pain in your childbearing. I've heard some of you ladies, or some, some of you men, have been a, your, your husbands has been part of births. Some of, the, some of these I've heard described as very clinical, very sanitized, controlled environments. That's how we get to have kids in the modern world. This was grimy. Outside in the state of nature, I would imagine in modern day language, we would call this a traumatic experience. Mary's never done this. She's a teenager. She's, Joseph is probably there terrified. He doesn't know what to do. And so they're, they're having this child outside. And through all of this very dramatic experience of the journey and the birth and how grimy and this could have been, we end with a baby boy in the arms of his mother and swaddled tightly and laying in a manger. And if we'll just stop for a second, not read too quickly, and just focus on what happened. It's quite a scene. It made me think of the Christmas song, and the question is, what child is this? What child is this who lays to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Well, we know, because of context of all the time that's passed, we know what child this is. We know that Philippians 2 says that Christ Jesus was the form of God and that he did, not, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead, this, this form of God who was equal with God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Colossians 2.9 says that Jesus is the whole fullness of deity. So the eternal God never had a beginning, will never have an end. From the Genesis story, the spirit that hovers over the face of the waters, the God who spoke our world into existence, you think of the fullness of deity is now in an infant you can hold in your two hands. If you just dwell on it, it'll blow your mind. The maker of the Grand Canyon and the Coral Reef, he who spoke galaxies and stars into existence, who dug out the Pacific Ocean, is now six or seven an ounce, six or seven pounds. It can fit in your hands. Let's think of another Christmas song about the birth of Jesus. O little town of Bethlehem, the final line of that verse, first verse is, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. All the hopes we ever had met in a baby boy. The answer to all your fears met in this tiny infant. And if we read it too quickly, we read past how cosmic the Christmas story is. It is both grimy and physical with Mary and Joseph and Jesus in a, in a, in a stable. It is also unbelievable. Like What a story we have at Christmas. Reminded me of something that in language in the wardrobe, Lucy says to two characters that I couldn't remember the name of. But they are out on some kind of side quest, some side adventure in language in the wardrobe. And they come to this stable. And in this stable, uh, on the outside, it looks very raggedy, like it's not going to be much of anything. It's this tiny little outhouse. And when these characters walk into the stable, it's actually gigantic. It's this huge hall of stuff that they need. It's an incredible thing. And one of the characters says to Lucy... The, this stable, this barn, is not, does not look outside what it looks like on the inside. The magic of Narnia changes it when you walk inside. And Lucy says back to that character something like, she's now not talking about Narnia, she's talking about the world she came from, the world that we live in. Lucy says back, in our world too, 
A stable once had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. And that's what child is this. To answer the question, what child is this who lays to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? It is a child bigger than the whole world because he made it. The force that made all things now resting in a teenager's arms or swaddled in a manger. Then we get a scene change. This very dramatic thing takes place. God is made flesh. He's dwelling among us. And then we switch to verse 8 and we get a couple new characters. We'll read just verse 8 and take a pause. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Let's stop and quickly talk about these shepherds. You've heard me talk about them some before. They were culturally outcasts in part because they were working with animals that the law called unclean. And so if you were working with animals who were unclean, then you're unclean and therefore couldn't worship in the temple most of the time. Now, the way shepherding worked is you were often transient, so you were always moving from town to town with your flock. And so they were thought of as people without roots. They didn't have family roots to go back to. There was even a a law in most of the Jewish world that says, if a shepherd's trying to sell you an animal, assume they stole it. Assume it's not their animal. They're usually tending someone else's flock anyway. They were not thought of as trustworthy enough to testify in court. Uh, I, I read this from a scholar as I was preparing. Uh, This thing called the Mishnah, the Jewish Mishnah, one of their law books. They have a law in there that says if you see a shepherd, and that shepherd is, let's say, fallen into a pit, or something's wrong with the shepherd, you can help them if you want. You don't have to, though. Like, don't feel compelled. They're just a shepherd. And that's what this culture has of shepherds. So here they are out on this field. Imagine that. There's no obviously no electricity. Imagine the darkness, the stillness. I think I've asked you to imagine this before. Imagine the coarseness, rough outdoorsy men, no ladies around to make them civilized. They are uh, out there, probably not with the greatest of language and stories, and that's the world that they're in right now. Dark, still, on the side of Bethlehem. Let's see what happens with these shepherds. Verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and the shepherds were filled with great fear. This is another way uh, the Bible just writes a very dramatic event in a very fact, just a fact-based way. So uh, one, it's just one angel. I need you to imagine that. There's only the one. I, my imagination makes me think it would have been noisy. Like there's some kind of buzz in the air when he pops onto, pops onto the scene uh, and they're terrified. I imagine it's sensory overload. It's bright. It's loud. It's imminent. It's all giving something big is happening here. I also imagine because of who they were that it, my thought would have been probably, uh-oh, like judgment has come to this hill. I don't know who's getting judged tonight, but this does not look good. It should say something about us that our gut reaction as people, like the shepherds, when the eternal breaks into the temporal, we know immediately we don't measure up, yeah. that we, we know our place in this order. Verse 10, And the angel said to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with that one angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. And that heavenly host was saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
This is a, a, a scripture you're probably quite familiar with. If you watch Charlie Brown special every year, it's read there. Um, so let's just work through some of this. One, this good news. This angel says, I bring you good news. This is a royal language, royal decree, like a, a, a future king has been born. Something momentous has, has taken place. He said it's going to be a joyous piece of news, so it's going to be for all people. And then he says, it's, there's born in the city of David a Savior. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Jesus is only called Savior twice. It's not a common term for him. It is often used at that time for the Roman emperor. The Roman emperor was called Savior. And so this angel is setting up, he's setting up some language of another kingdom. Another kingdom is being founded right now. The, the king who, who ha, will have no end has come as Savior. And then he says he's Christ the Lord. That word Christ just meaning the Messiah. That Genesis 3 promise that we saw two weeks ago. That one is coming through the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent who brought the curse into the world. Well, he is finally on the scene. And then they say you're going to find as a sign the manger. Because I think we, we've heard the story so much. It doesn't strike us as weird that you would walk into a barn and see a baby in the food trough. Like, that's not where the baby's supposed to be. And so this is actually a really, really good sign for them. Like, how will we know? We're going to walk into a barn, and there'll be a baby uh, in a manger, which is, which is really weird for them. It's also this setting. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus' entire life. Here he is being announced by angels as king. And where will we find this king? In a barn, uh, in a manger, uh, and his parents will be probably one terrified guy and a teenage girl um, that you've never heard of before. You have that juxtaposition of he is king and this is his reality. And his whole life is that way. He is the coming king above all things, but he suffered. And sometimes in obscurity. And ultimately, as we sang earlier, that he was, he, he was, he was killed by, by those he came to save. After the announcement, they make this announcement to the shepherds. What shows up is an army of angels. When you see that language, a multitude of heavenly hosts. Host is a military term. And this is a, this is a good way to start this discussion we're going to have later. It's an upside-down phrase because he says uh, there's a heavenly host. An army of angels has come. And when an army comes, they're usually pronouncing violence. They're pronouncing judgment. Armies come to break stuff. And instead... A heavenly host comes and pronounces peace. That's what this army is bringing. They announce Jesus. They announce peace on the world. And then from there, the party's on. They're singing the songs. There's joy. Joy has come to that hillside. Joy has come to the earth in this baby. Verse 15. When the angels went away from the shepherds into heaven, the shepherds said one to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And the shepherds went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. So the quiet, the stillness, I think, is restored on that hill. I'd love to have seen their faces as they tried to figure out what just happened. Uh, but these shepherds are changed people. They hear incredible news, and they act, they're active on that news. They hear news, and they do something with it. They respond by going to find Mary, Joseph, and Jesus Verse 17, and when they saw it, the shepherds, the shepherds made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. So they tell Mary and Joseph what they had heard. And all who heard it 
wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. So the, for the shepherds, they have this joy. It's an overflowing joy. They can't stop telling people. They tell Mary and Joseph, so hey guys, uh, we were up on a hill. Angel showed up, said that you just had the Savior, who's Christ the Lord. You, should, you guys should know that. And then as they're going out, they keep telling people it is a joy that overflows. They couldn't keep in what the, the good news they had had. And now we're going to get another scene change. So we've had the profound experience of Mary, Joseph, and God coming into the world as an infant. The news, the joy that is spread to the shepherds, and they're telling everybody. And now we get a, a little bit of a scene change. We're going to go to the temple starting in verse 21. And two, let, me, let me pause for a second. I think the part of the story you just heard, you've heard a ton. Even if you didn't grow up in church, very normal to hear all the parts we just did. There's a little bit more here. There's two more characters that we should pay attention to in Luke chapter 2. So let's start there in verse 21. And at the end of eight days after Jesus was born, when Jesus was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Verse 22. And when the time came for there, that's Jesus and Mary's, purification according to the law of Moses, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present Jesus to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And they came to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. To you, all of this might be boring details. But in part, it's it's important just to remember, have another reminder, we are reading an historical document. Luke comes to do the research and tell us the very specifics about these faithful Jews going through all the proper ceremonies. I think it's also at least worth noting that the turtle doves or the young pigeons they're offering, this is the offering of a poor family. So this Jesus that we magnify in here every week, the Jesus I hope you worship and have communion with every day, that's the, that's the family he was born into. This poor family offering this poor sacrifice. Verse 26. Here's our new character. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. And it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that Simeon would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Lord's Messiah. So let's talk about Simeon real quick. We're going to find out more uh, solidly in a minute. He's an older man. It's already implied uh, because if he's thinking about death coming, the guy's older and he's been promised, you will not see this final day until you've seen the Messiah come. So he's righteous, he's devout, he's a faithful follower of God. And he, and Luke says he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. So this faithful man, his daily longing is, I want the comfort of the Lord. The comfort of the Messiah coming. I, that's what I want. And specifically mentioned twice here, the Holy Spirit was upon him. If you read through these first chapters of Luke, that is so key. The Holy Spirit keeps showing up and that is the, the, active, uh, the active factor. So it was Zechariah, it was Elizabeth, it was Mary, and John the Baptist even in the womb. Now add Simeon. Something illuminating happens when the Holy Spirit comes. Now here's a sneaking suspicion I have about Simeon. 
can't prove it, but you know human nature, and I know human nature, so uh, stick with me. We find out he's an old guy. We also find out he has been given a word of prophecy. God has told him, you won't die until you see the Messiah come. He hangs out in the temple a lot, so I have to imagine if there's a super old guy telling people, I've got a word from the Lord that I'm not going to see death until the Messiah comes. I know this if I met him. I'd think he's super weird that he's telling this old guy tells everybody that he has this prophecy. I can't prove that that's how they would see him, but wouldn't you? If there's just an old guy walking around church every week saying, I've got a prophecy from the Lord, we would think that he's kind of a weird guy. In verse 27, here's what he does. And Simeon came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents, Mary and Joseph, brought in Jesus to do for Jesus according to the custom of the law, Simeon took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said, we'll pause there. One, I don't know if this is necessarily Simeon's job, but uh, it happened so fast, I think parents would get nervous. The weird older guy who keeps talking about God's vision just grabbed a kid. I think our security guys would have taken, uh, taken attention to that at, that at that moment. Verse 29, here's what he says, holding Jesus in his hands. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. I suspect that it's one thing for this older, somewhat weird guy to grab a kid, but when he grabs the baby and starts saying, it's okay for me to die now, I think that's when everybody starts coming in pretty quick, quick on this guy. Like, what are you doing? But let's, let's I'm, I'm being funny, but let's be serious about Simeon for a minute. The spirit illuminated his eyes. He knows only because the Spirit showed him, this infant is the comfort you've been waiting for. This infant, as he says, it's the salvation. This baby I'm holding, it's the, he is the salvation for God's people. And even people not thought of as currently God's people, he's going to be a light to the Gentiles. I, I can just feel the deep satisfaction in Simeon. This old man who has been praying for this, longing for this, and he's been promised it. And, once were, and what was once strong hands, now weakened by age, holding this baby and knowing. He's come. And I get to go rest. Verse 33. And Jesus' father and his mother, they marveled at what was said about Jesus. And Simeon blessed Mary and Joseph, and said to Mary's mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul, Mary, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This fall and rising language is very similar to what Mary had in her song last week. They're both seeing that Jesus' coming is a sign that some are about to fall, the mighty, the powerful, they're about to fall, and the weak will be exalted. He says that there is a sign is opposed. This is actually not a quote, but an allusion back to Isaiah that says, this Messiah that comes, he will face opposition. And he, he just prepared Mary, your son, the Messiah, he will face opposition. And then he says, and also Mary, there's a sword that will pierce through your own soul so that you know as a mom, 
you're going to have to struggle through your son's opposition. There's going to be some things he faces, and I'm sure, moms, you can, you can relate that when your son faces opposition, you feel it deeply, and he tells Mary that's coming too. Now we have one more scene change. This is our last little bit here. So we have Simeon, who just feels the consolation of the Lord. Now he can go rest. We have one more there, verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was, I love, uh, I love this euphemism, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So let's stop really quickly on her. So she's 84 years old. She's been widowed for decades. I have to assume, just like Simeon, the older guy who talks about prophecies, I assume she's something of an outsider there too. She, Luke says she is a prophetess, so she does hear from the Lord. But this also says she never leaves the temple. She's there night and day. She's always with fasting and prayer. Again, just asking you, how would you react to that person? How would you react to the 84-year-old woman who says she hears from God and is never leaving the temple and is always in prayer and fasting? Wouldn't you think she's a little off? So I suspect she's probably an outsider in this temple too. But here is Jesus, Mary, Joseph in the temple, and here comes Anna, this 84-year-old who never leaves the temple. She's coming to interact with them in verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, Anna began to give thanks to God and to speak of Jesus to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel, for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed, the people in the temple had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, Mary and Joseph returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So we have this woman, Anna. She had been waiting faithfully for now decades for the redemption of Israel. Simeon had been waiting for the consolation, the comfort of God's people. She wanted to see the redemption of God's people. And both of them at the arrival of Jesus know they finally have gotten what they've always been waiting for. And she starts telling anyone who will listen there in the temple what she's seeing. And I just imagine that temple. Everyone else there just sees a baby boy. This happens all the time. Jews bring their firstborn sons in for this ceremony. But through the Holy Spirit, Anna and Simeon see the cosmic truth of who this baby is. And now, we have in just this story, this king has come, the joy of Christ has come, and the people who are telling everybody are outsider shepherds, older people who are probably somewhat typecast as well, they're all affirming the words of Gabriel and angels. Christ has come. Hope has arrived and joy is here. And that concludes the birth, the childhood of Jesus and those characters. just have three points I want to make about these characters that we saw and then just one final word. So number one, as we think about joy and the joy that we push on, not delight that you push on and it falls over, but how can we have a joy that when we push on it, it stays there? So number one is joy in the upside-down kingdom. Joy in the upside-down kingdom. I introduced that concept to you with this, that the angels come, they're a heavenly host, they're an army, but they don't come for violence, they come for peace. The army comes uh, announcing peace, which is upside-down. That's not what armies are supposed to do. But this whole story to us seems upside-down. Consider where and when we live. 
When it's honor and prestige that we, that we are, are, are going to point somewhere, we point that towards cultural centers. We point that towards uh, the universities where the, the new thoughts come from. We point that to the big cities. We point that to, to, to the people who are wealthy and famous and talented and influential. That's where we live. That's where power and prestige and attention goes. It affects all of us. I know it affects me. Just studying for this, I realize in some ways the way that this culture has just affected me and how I think about where the power and the prestige should go. Consider that if we wrote the story of the king coming, it would not look like this. There would be lots of fanfare. There would be tweets and press conferences and Facebook posts of all the most important people. They would be the ones recognizing it. From the highest government, uh, the highest government officials around the world, we would want them saying something about it. The people who are pushing out the news, they need to be significant. We certainly wouldn't have had the baby born where he was born. He would have been born in a palace somewhere. That's how our kingdom would have written the story of a king coming, but that is not the story of Jesus. He comes to a totally nondescript, insignificant couple in a totally unremarkable town to be born in a grimy environment. The people who are spreading the news are outcasts, lower-class shepherds. They're two older people, probably nearly forgotten people. And your culture would not have written this kingdom. Our kingdom is an upside-down kingdom in the best of ways, and there's joy to find in it. Right now in the Christian world, uh, it's very popular. There's a, there's, a, there's a book out, lots of different sermons about this thing I'm about to tell you, that uh, all of us, maybe and all of us in this room, have four, one of four, or maybe more, uh, of these things called core idols that we think about an idolatry we might have, but underneath it, that idolatry is something even more imminent. And that, uh, that's where we find our joy. So here's the, the four most, uh, most common that's being taught right now all over the church world. That for every person, we're all looking for approval, power, significance, or comfort, or maybe more than one of those. But for all the things that we think we idolize, we are really idolizing that we just want to be approved of. That we want comfort in this life. That we want to know we have power, control over our own lives, control over uh, the, the institutions that we're a part of, or we at least want influence. We want to know that we have influence over other people. And that, that is what this world tells us where joy comes from. Joy will come if you can get approval from the world. If you can get power, if you can get significance, you can get comfort. But our kingdom's culture is upside down. We see it in the story. In the eyes of the world, this is an absurd story. This is obscurity, not power and influence. This is humility, not comfort. Our story is one where our king is derided and bears a cross and then calls us to do the same. So then, in all of that, how do we find joy when this world says it comes from approval and power and significance and comfort? And our core story says, no, it's of security. It's obscurity and humility. It's bearing your cross. Well, here's what we're about to find. The objects of joy for the kingdom that we're in, the, the Western world, this earthly kingdom, they are just happinesses that when you push on them a little, when you test them a little, they just fall over. But in our kingdom, when we push on the source of our joy, it stands strong. And we find that then in the shepherd. So number one, we find joy in our upside-down kingdom. It is some, it's, it's values that are foreign to this world, but we can see in the shepherds where true joy can come from. And it's from this, this phrase. Number two, then, the joy of the shepherds. 
angel comes on the scene, and I think this gets overlooked in the text. He says, glory to God in the highest. This is a response to that world that you're living in. Because we might have highest something else. Glory, joy. Joy in the approval is the highest. Glory to, uh, glory to power in the highest. Glory to influence in the highest. Glory to comfort in the highest. And when you have those lesser things as highest, they just fail you. You just push on them a little. And they fall over. Some of you are looking to glory to find joy in approval of parents who never approved. Approval of a spouse. Approval of your boss. From strangers on the internet through social media. We're looking through for approval. Sometimes we even get it. We push on it just a little. It doesn't really satisfy us. There's still something missing. Some of us have not glory to approval in the highest. It's, uh, it's glory to power in the highest. I control my own life. I'm in control of my household. I'm in control of my experiences. I'm in control of the institutions that I'm a part of. I have control. But we just push on that a little and we find out we're not in control. That's right. If any year proved to us we didn't have control over our own circumstances, it's this year. For some of us, it's glory to influence in the highest. I've got, I can speak into all the right institutions. I can manipulate events and manipulate people to, for my own safety, for my own security. But then we lose that influence. People stop listening to us. and We just push on our influence a little. It just falls right over. For some of us, it's not glory to God in the highest. It's glory to comfort in the highest. Just trying to create a world of comfort, peace, peace and ease. That's what I want. And man, then hardship comes. Tragic things happen. Sad things happen. And we just push on our comfort a little. It falls right over. And so we see then in the message to the shepherds, there is joy to be had. But it is not an approval, power, influence, or comfort. There is joy to be had when God is the highest. Glory, joy, glory to God in the highest, and there is joy to be found there forevermore. There's other places we try to find joy. I wrote down a couple examples here. In our search for joy, we're often also hurting people around us. Parents, maybe you know this. If you don't, let me say it to you. Your kids can't handle being the source of your joy. It is too heavy for them. They, can't, they cannot hold it. Your spouse can't handle being the source of your joy. It's way too heavy a burden. But when God is rightly the highest source of our joy, he can handle that. When you push on him for the, si- the highest source of your joy, he will stand there strong, smile on his face as he sends Jesus to you to be the source of your joy, Holy Spirit filling up that fullness of joy. And when, when God is rightly the highest source of our joy, There is joy forevermore. There's pleasures forevermore. When something else is highest, there is eventually just misery. So we look at the joy of the shepherds. How do they find it? Well, because God is highest. That's where I'm going to find my joy. The other thing we learn from the shepherds is that when they find that joy, they know that they can, if they push on anything else, it will fall over. When they push on the joy of the Lord, it stays. We also see from them that when you do joy in something, you advocate for it. You tell somebody. You know that from us. We advocate for things we love. We advocate for things that are in which we find joy. We find a new band, a new album. We want to tell somebody, I found joy in this. 
You find a new restaurant, new recipe. You want to tell somebody. You find a new experience, new place you went. You want to tell somebody. The shepherds had a new experience, found some new news, and they couldn't stop telling people. May we have that heart as well. That as we have glory to God in the highest in a very depressed and a, a very down world, and where, where can we find that deep abiding joy? And as we have it, let it overflow. May we have that heart of letting the joy spill over. And as one song we sing here sometimes, the joy spill over and music fill the day and night because we found joy in the Lord. So number one, there's the joy of an upside down kingdom. It does not look like what the world says to find joy in, but what the world finds joy in, it's delight untested. And when we test it, it falls over. Well, we have God as the highest. That's the joy of the shepherds, number two. And that's joy that stays. Finally, there's the joy of Simeon and Anna. Something profound to me is that the stories that bookend the birth of Jesus is the story, or are the stories, of two older sets of people. There's Zechariah and Elizabeth having John the Baptist and past their years. There's the story of Simeon and Anna, older people, waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the redemption of God's people. And in the middle of it, there is the story of all the hopes they ever had coming, all their hopes being fulfilled, these saints who were eager for the future. There's something profound there for Simeon and Anna, something profound there for Zechariah and for Elizabeth, that the, the joining of the new and the old, the, of those faithfully practicing the, the law of God and practicing that covenant, joying in the, in the realization that the fulfillment of this law has come. Everything our people have waited for is, there, has come and we can have joy in that. But all of that, what they knew, what they knew of Jesus and knowing that he was going to be the source of the joy, it was the joy that came from illumination from the Holy Spirit. It says that of Zechariah, of Elizabeth, of Simeon, of Anna. How can this joy happen? Because what I just told you is I put a burden on you. Go find some joy. Find some joy and making God the highest. And something in you might have said is, how do I do that? You can't. You can't do it. The Holy Spirit in you can. And if you are here today, you're redeemed. You're part of the family of God. The same Holy Spirit that, that powered that in Zechariah and Elizabeth and Anna and Simeon, you have the same Holy Spirit. So pray for it. Desire it. That we, have the, we can see the joy of Simeon and Anna because the illumination of the Holy Spirit illuminated that the source of their joy would be Jesus alone. So we had the, number one, the joy of our upside down kingdom. It's very different than the values of the world, but it's the, it points us to point two, joy of the shepherds, that if you have glory to God in the highest and not anything else in the highest, there's joy there that can actually stick around. And then we see in the joy of Simeon and Anna, that can only happen through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Final thought for you. And kids, if you've tuned out, tune back in for me. Joy is coming Friday morning. We are this close. You've hoped for it. You've prepared for it. And if the Lord does not come back before then, it's coming for us. Here's something I, I want to point your hearts to. When that joy comes, and wrapping paper is everywhere. And parents, that coffee in your hand hit just right. It was just the, it was just the right brew. And you see joy on your kids' faces. Kids, I hope this is true for you. Parents, I hope this is true for you. That in the joy of that moment, you will stop and say, this is good. Man, we got something better. 
There's a hope I have, a thing we're preparing for. Christ coming, and he has come. This is good. It's a good blessing from the Lord. But man, it pales in comparison. It's a type and a shadow of the joy that is to come. There's one more thing I want to say to you about Friday. I also know this, if any of you are like me. Something happens Christmas night, every year for me. Where it was so much fun. I usually go over early and see Caleb, Kobe, Sophie open gifts. It's, it's just a good joy for me. I get to spend time with a family that I'm so spoiled by. It's an incredible family. There's usually football on. It's a good day. It's just, there's so much joy in it. Good food, good people. And there's something Friday night where I go, was that it? I waited, I waited for this for 364 days. And i got to wait 364 more. Was that it? That was the whole thing we waited for. Even though it was so good, is that all? And the answer on this earth, if you have that same thing Friday night where you wonder, was this all? Well, the answer on this earth is, yeah, that's it. And that's it till next Christmas. And the one after that, and the one after that. But the thing that we're hoping for and preparing for, that is not a joy that ends on Friday night. That is a joy forevermore. And so as we have the joy of Christmas on Friday, can I ask you, can I beg you, can I ask the Holy Spirit now even to, to do in you, point your heart towards the eternal? Because the joy we get is so much better than what's coming on Friday, although what's coming on Friday is going to be awesome. So the joy of our upside-down kingdom, the joy of having glory to God in the highest and asking for the Holy Spirit to illuminate that in us, that we would find our hope and our joy in Christ come, in Christ coming again. I'm going to pray for us. As I do, I'm going to ask the band to come up, and we're going to sing another song together before we come around the table of the Lord. I'll spend some time in prayer now.